hello and welcome to another episode of down the rabbit hole um this is the midweek episode uh you've got me brandon um and first off thank you everyone for listening this is a blast we have so much fun we're going into a whole new year um this is the the final episode of 2023 um actually i guess Really, Sunday's episode will be the final episode, and that one's going to be Big D by himself um, because I'm out of town. Um, I'm taking my kids to go see the the disgusting mouse, see if I can find, you know, the whatever, 33 and all that crap at Disneyland. So, yeah, so while I'm doing that wonderful thing, um, you will get Big D, and then we will be back together the following Sunday um, with a fun one. That's the, this, the, the ones coming up, the, the first ones we planned for the beginning of the year are ones we've kind of wanted to do forever, forever and we just weren't sure how we were going to do them. So this is going to be, I think this is going to be a lot of fun and I'm hoping you as the listeners will enjoy the episodes that we have coming. So, but thank you again for everyone for listening for all the years. Um, it's been a while. Um, I think this we're, we're going into year four, I believe, because um, we started in 2020, like right as the the pandemic happened, and now we're going into 2024. So, um, my final episode of this year, I'm gonna have a little bit of fun with. Um, it's called the 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 Urantia book, um, sometimes called the Urantia Papers or the Fifth Epical Revelation. Um, this is an interesting one. It's one that I ran across in a very interesting way. Um, this one has ties and I don't know how far I get into the ties of it. Um, but it does have ties into celestial seasoning. Um, the sleepy time tea. Um, and this is the one that everyone always talks about how sleepy time tea is a, you know, part of a cult type thing. Um, so we're going to go into it a little bit. Like I said, I don't know how far and how much I'll touch on its ties to celestial seasoning. Um, it's kind of a, a weird tie in, but we will get to that a little bit later on. Actually, you know, never mind. Never mind. I, I was going to get into that later, but I kind of, I need to get it out of the way now. Let's get it out of the way early. Get it done with. Get everyone, you know, kind of on that whole celestial seasoning, sleepy time nappy whatever so um quick run through on it like we said um this is one of those ones and one of the reasons i kind of looked into your auntie to begin with is because of this because i kept getting sent stories like these um so celestial seasonings is america's number one tea manufacturer so it's based in boulder colorado uh, they make every kind of herbal tea you can think of and rake in about 100 million each year Celestial Seasoning Sleepy Time Tea is the number one best-selling specialty tea of all time. The iconic drink is packaged with a cute bedtime, bedtime bear on the box, and like all Celestial Seasoning Tea, includes an inspirational message on the tea tag. Celestial Seasoning attracts more than 100,000 visitors each year on their tea tour, and the company's headquarters is considered one of the top free travel destinations in the U.S., According to their website, the company was founded in 1969 by a group of hikers and featured herbs handpicked by founder Mo Siegel in the Rocky Mountains. 
Mo Siegel went on to become the company's president until a merger with Kraft. After a corporate buyback, Siegel returned from retirement for over a decade to again lead the company. So for a while there, they were owned by Kraft. And then they bought themselves back out and unmerged with Kraft, which is probably a good idea. So in 2015, writer Megan Giller broke the story about a niche religious text Mo Siegel and another early Special Seasonings employee, John Hay, follow. A mysterious 2,095-page book called the Urantia Book appeared in Chicago sometime between 1924 and 1955. Since 1955, the book has been published by the Urantia Foundation, which lists Mo Siegel as its president. The foundation exists to publish the Urantia book and ensure the idea in the book are spread. According to the Urantia Foundation's website, Siegel discovered the Urantia book the same year he founded Celestial Seasonings during the Summer of Love. Interesting, right? So that's where the whole tie-in comes in. Apparently, Mo Siegel, who is the founder of Celestial Seasonings and the famous Sleepy Time Tea, um, is also the same person who brought us the Urantia book. So that's where the tie-in comes in. Um, it's really, honestly, if you go into that, that's really the only place that there's a tie, that Mo Siegel happens to be involved in both. Do I think that Celestial Seasonings and all that is into Urantia? Probably. Who knows? Could be. Don't know. Don't really care. It's not my thing. I'm not really a tea drinker. I like coffee. As you can tell because I'm hyperactive and everything else. So yeah, I'm not a big sleepy time tea person. Um, yeah, so that's just kind of one of those very odd things. But this is, like I said, what brought me into look at the Urantia book was everybody kept saying, hey, have you heard that sleepy time tea is part of a cult? That they started a cult? They technically really didn't start a cult. It just happens that the founder of Celestial Seasoning is also the same founder of a cult. Yay. So, not sure if that's good or bad. Whatever. So, so like I said, the Urantia book, sometimes called the Urantia Papers, or the Fifth Epical, Epical Revelation, is a spiritual, philosophical, and religious book that originated in Chicago sometime between 24 and 55. There's some debate on when the book first appeared, if that if that makes sense. There's, like I said, it, the, the, the origin of the book is, of course, clouded. Um, the authorship is also technically unknown. Um, the origin, everything else, it all comes down to what, you know, Sadler says. Um, or, well, see, that's kind of the thing. The, the, the Mo Siegel, but it was Sadler who wrote the book. So that's, that's where everything kind of comes into play there. It gets interesting. All of it gets very, it's very, depending on which site you're reading as usual, which is what we find in with a lot of these things. Depends on which site and which, you know, where you're getting your information 
on a lot of the facts and everything else with it when especially when it comes to these cults because a lot of times it's the 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 former members or people who have snuck in or got information or stolen information or whatever or just guessed information on where everything comes from so it's very very interesting so we're going to go to really to their website and i'm going to give you some information straight from them from the urantia foundation so who are considered the custodians of the urantia book since 1950 and if you want to go look at this it's on urantia.org that's spelled u-r-a-n-t-i-a.org that is their foundation So Urantia Foundation was established in 1950 to be the custodian of the involatile, in, oh sorry, inviolate text of the Urantia book, and to ensure that the book's teachings are spread with the help of readers and fraternal organizations to all people. This site is provided as a service to the community of Urantia book readers and is in no way implies responsibility for any individual religious group or social organization. So the Urantia Foundation really isn't a cult or anything like that. It's just they are the custodians of the book, of the text. That's it. Urantia Foundation is a nonprofit educational foundation that operates under a declaration of trust. It has been printing the book in English since 1955 and in recent years has been translating the book into many other languages of the world. The home of Urantia Foundation, 533 West Diversity Parkway, Chicago, Illinois, was built in 1908. Prior to publication of the Urantia book, the building was used for regular meetings of early readers of the transcripts. The entire estate was bequeathed to the Urantia Foundation in 1969. Today, it consists of offices, a basement for storage, and shipping operations, a forum room for meetings and study groups, and two residential apartments. So, challenges for the future. The Urantia book tells us, The religious challenge of this age is to those far-seeing and forward-looking men and women of spiritual insight who will dare to construct a new and appealing philosophy of living out of the enlarged and exquisitely integrated modern concepts of cosmic truth, Universe, beauty, and divine goodness. The teachings contained in the Urantia book, when embraced in the hearts and minds of mankind, have the power to bring the reality, the super, supernal message from the Master, peace on earth and goodwill among men. Delivering this revelation to souls in need of its spiritual message without invasive promotion, churchification, or evangelization is the challenge that faces us. Plans are underway to increase the number of language translations to 60 by the year 2030 and to provide worldwide distribution channels. By then, approximately 84% of the people on the planet will be able to read the Urantia book in their native tongue. To succeed in this ambitious program, Urantia Foundation needs the support and help of people like you. If you'd like to participate in the work of spreading the teaching of the Urantia book to all the peoples of the world, or if you'd simply like additional information, please let us know. So that's the beginning of the Urantia book. That's that's the foundation. Um, so of course, the the and this one's tough, really, in a way to call it a cult because there's really no organization. There's really nothing besides the foundation, which basically says, "Here's the book. Enjoy." That's it. I found no 
place to go worship Urantia. I found no place to go do anything. All I found is, here's the book. So if you found any more than that, let me know. So, very interesting. Um, so, the Urantia book, first public, published by Urantia Foundation in 1955, presents us with the origin, history, and destiny of humanity. It answers questions about God, life in the inhabited universe, the history and future of this world, and it includes an uplifting narrative of the life and teachings of Jesus. The Urantia book portrays our relationship with God the Father. All human beings are the sons and daughters of a loving God, and therefore brothers and sisters in the family of God. The book provides new spiritual truth for modern men and women, and a pathway to a personal relationship with God. Building on the world's religious heritage, the Urantia book describes an endless destiny for humankind, teaching that living faith is the key to personal spiritual progress and eternal survival. It also describes God's plan for the progressive evolution of individuals, human society, and this universe as a whole. Many people around the world have said that reading the Urantia book has profoundly inspired them to reach deeper levels of spiritual growth. It has given them new meaning to life and the desire to be of service to humanity. We encourage you to read it as well and discover for yourself its ennobling message. So, there you go. You can read it, download it, study it, search it, listen, buy videos, everything on their website. Very interesting to go to their website and just kind of look what they're saying. So, like I said, right now I'm on their website. So, this everything I'm reading to you right now and we're talking about right now is straight from the foundation. So, here is the history according to the foundation so by William Sadler there's a whole bunch of books here by the way so and we're going to kind of run through all of this and run through their history and then we'll talk about some of the other interesting kind of their beliefs and everything else that has to do with the Rantria book and this is what the one thing that's been like I said it's been very interesting to me um Everyone wants to call this a cult, but I'm having issues with the idea that it's a cult because, and I think it's just because it's not your typical cult. It's not like Mormonism where there's a, a structured church or like Jim Jones and everything like that where there's a, a leader in the front that's leading people to all the these places it's just really it's a book and they're saying here's the book have at you do with this as you will there's really not a whole lot of anything and that i think is the weirdest part to me which is funny because that's one of the biggest things i've always had with organized religion one of my biggest issues is is the church i don't agree with the church and that's one thing long-time listeners will understand me on that one and understand what i mean i hope by that i have never said that i am an atheist i've never said that because i'm really not i believe in most of it i read the bible i read all of it 
But my biggest problem is with the church. I feel like now um, the story we get Jesus of topping, you know, throwing over the tables and everything in front of the church and everything like that. I believe he would be doing the same with 98% of the churches in the world today. And that's always been my biggest problem is the churches. And with the Urantia Foundation, they kind of did that with a different book, obviously. But they basically did that. They said, here's the book. Here's the teachings. Do with it as you want. Which is a very interesting, interesting thing to me. Um, so we'll kind of run through real quick a history of the Urantia movement. So, um, And this, once again, is straight from their website. So several members of the, the group who participated in the preliminary contacts, which led up to the appearance of the Urantia papers, had had considerable experience in the investigation of psychic phenomena. And this is one of those things. Sadler and many of the other original trustees in the beginning of the, the, the Urantia movement and the, the books, the papers, everything like that, were part of like anti, not really anti, I guess is the word, but they were... They would find people pretty much hoaxers. They, they would hoax, basically hoax busters. They would go around and find people that are mediums and stuff like that and show how they're being, basically these people are scamming and con artists. Um, and that's kind of what he did. So, so they, they'd had a lot of history into the phys, you know, high, psychic phenomena investigating that. So the group early arrived at the conclusion that the phenomenon connected with the personality who was later associated with the Urantia papers was in no way similar to any other well-known type of psychic performance, such as hypnosis, automatic writing, clairvoyance, trances, spirit membership, mediumship, telepathy, or double personality. Should we make clear that the antecedents of the Urantia papers were in no way associated with the so-called spiritualism, with its seances and supposed communication with spirits of departed human beings. So, that's kind of the whole idea of this. Basically, the person they got him from was someone who was, in a way, channeling it. And there's been arguments back and forth on who the channel person channelizing it was. One of the one of the people that has been named quite often. Um. But there's really no, it's like real evidence, it's circumstantial, is one of the Kellogg's. Which the Kellogg's, and by Kellogg's I mean Kellogg cereal, which he's a whole nother lunatic um, in himself, which he deserves his own episode, um, the, the founder of Kellogg. Um, his family is involved in this because Sadler, I got, I, I'll, I'll have it here in a minute, it's somewhere in my notes. Um, it's either Sadler or one of his partners is married to the niece of the founder of Kellogg. But a lot of people think that it's her brother that is the, the person channeling the Urantia book. But that is, it's, it's mentioned in different places, but they don't say that in the Urantia Foundation. They just say it was a person. And Dr. Sadler, he was a doctor. He worked at a sanitarium, which I'm not going to get into it, but I guess there's a difference between a sanitarium and oh, what was the other one? There's two that sound almost identical. Um, one of them is basically a loony bin, and the other is basically a, 
it would basically be the difference of sending you to a, a, a state mental hospital and going to a paid, like, drug rehab, like in Hollywood, where they have a spa. And that's kind of what the sanitarium was. That's where the rich people went to go get mental help. But back then, mental help was just basically a vacation. So, yeah. So, they were doctors at a sanitarium. That's a whole nother thing we could go into in a different time. So, so activities preceding the Urantia papers. Um, so, it seemed that during these early years, our unseen friends were engaged in a thoroughgoing testing of the contact personality, rehearsing the technique of communication, selecting the contact commissioners, in fact, in a general way, setting the stage for the subsequent initiation of the presentation of the Urantia papers. During these early years, we were introduced to many new and, to us, somewhat strange concepts of the universe, of universes, and as concerned man and his life on Earth. Among these numerous new ideas of cosmology and philosophy, the following may be mentioned. And this is where it's going to get very interesting when we start talking about the Urantia Papers. And like I said, I'm reading from their, their website. Um, to give you kind of a background on some of this stuff, but it's difficult because I'll be honest, a lot of the stuff that they're writing in many ways, and this is very normal when it comes to weird stuff, religious stuff like this, it's written in a way that becomes confusing because you're like, what in the hell are you talking about now? Because they do it in a way where, and it's happened already a couple times, where they start talking about something as if you already are part of a conversation, like you're stepping into the middle of a conversation, like you should already understand this part. And that's been my hardest part in a lot of this because it's a 2000 page book. I didn't read the whole book. Sorry, people. I ain't that much into research, but I went through a lot of, I basically did the Cliff's notes. And if you don't know what Cliff's notes are, you're not old enough. You need to look up Cliff's Notes. They were my favorite thing. Um, not really. I read anyway, so I was fine with it. But um, on these, you want to make sure that, you know, I kind of went through basically the Cliff's Notes. And it gets interesting. But they, they, they use a lot of wording that tries to make you <clears throat> confused. And they do that in a way to get people to understand in the way they want them to understand if that makes sense. So I feel like I'm starting to do the same thing to you because my brain's starting to break because I'm reading all this too much. All right. So some of these new ideas and things that are going to be mentioned, that'll be mentioned throughout. So um, a new concept of far-flung cosmoses. Um, there's a belief which, is, strangely enough, is something I brought up in episodes before. How do I know we're the only universe? How do I know we're the only Earth? How do we know God didn't make more than just this one? This is what they, they basically say. There's multiples. We're, we're one of many. So that there's millions of other inhabited planets, planets within our universe and within other universes. Introduction to scores of different and varied echelons of celestial personalities. There's different levels of celestials and different celestials we've never even heard of. Um, confirmation of evolutionary origin of humankind even of an evolutionary cosmos. Intimidation of multiple creator deities, not just one, many creator deities. 
tentative testing of our theological concepts, patient determination of how far we might possibly go in the direction of modifying our theological beliefs and philosophical opinions. So basically they're saying they're going to just blow your mind with all of this. Without realizing it, over a period of 20 years, our fundamental religious views and attitudes had been considerably changed. That's actually very easy to point out um, how much our belief systems and our religious views have changed over the years. So we had been familiarized with such terms as the first source and center, Havona, super universes, and the supreme being. But we had but meager ideas as to the real meaning of these names. So these are all things that we'll go through that the book goes through. They talk about the first source and center, Havona. So we also heard such words as master spirits, outer space, and power directors. But again, we understood little as to their meaning. We also learned about numerous orders of angels. All sorts of interesting things. I haven't heard of power directors yet. That's one I think we're all gonna learn together. When we start getting into uh, Crowley, we'll talk about power bottoms, but that's a whole other thing. We heard about thought adjusters, but our concept of the meaning of the term was vague and indefinite, which, once again, is what religions do. We had acquired a fuzzy concept of the Morontii level of existence, but we never heard the word Morontii used until the paper started. But Morontii is, that's a tough one. Because that it's it's a twist on a word that is used throughout the Bible, throughout the the Mormon beliefs, Moroni, the you know Moroni, Moroni. What are they? Oh, I can't remember. I I should know this. There's the ironic, ironic priesthood, ironic priesthood, ironic um, whatever. Um, and the Moronic, I should know this because I was raised religious, Mormon, but I try and we did a whole month on this, but I, I don't really care about the Mormonism anyway. But yes, Moronti is just another, it seems to me anyway, is just another way of pronouncing the same idea that's been used in many religions. That Moronti, Moroni, there we go, it's very close. Um, all right, next one, the Midwayers were very real to us. We frequently talked with them during our varied contacts. We quite fully understand that the secondary midwayers supervise the contacts. So that's something that, once again, we'll probably learn together. We heard some things about the Lucifer Rebellion. Ooh, they're going to start getting the Lucifer Rebellion. That sounds like something I've heard about before. But got little information about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve is a whole nother idea in this, by the way. Um, this is what's weird about this. And a lot of going into this, this book... Um, it's one of the things that I've argued before um, that I feel like in a lot of ways, like the Bible, the Quran, some of those other ones are just different different interpretations and different um, different ways of looking at the same book. So it's basically like if we took the same book written in another language and we interpreted it, and basically changed it and translated that into another language, we might end up, depending on who did the translation, with different ideas in different books. And that's where I think the Quran, the Bible, and a lot of those, especially the Old Testament, all come from the same book, just translated by different people. 
So you can come at me if you want, but look at the stories. They're very similar in a lot of ways. All right. Um, let's see. Next thing in the, the line on this. We gained the impression that there were special reasons for Jesus' bestool, best, bestool on Urantia. But we had little or no idea as to the t- nature of these unrevealed reasons. We listened to occasional references to Jesus' life and teachings, but they were very cautious about their introduction of any new concepts regarding Michael's Urantia Bestol. Of all the Urantia revelations, the Jesus papers were the biggest surprise. One of the big things you find with Urantia is Urantia actually really believes that in our universe, Michael is the creator God. At least this is my understanding. If somebody in here understands Urantia better than me, Tell me where I'm wrong. But from what I understood from my reading, Michael, this is the creator God. Michael is Jesus. Jesus is a representation of Michael or a a part of Michael or just Michael and himself. So, yes, all interesting ideas. Um, while we did not hear the term core of the finality, we did pick up a hazy idea that paradise might be the destination of surviving mortals. So that's kind of the the history that they're talking about. Our superhuman friends thus spent upward of two decades in extending our cosmic horizons, enlarging our theological concepts, expanding our overall philosophy. We never realized how much our religious thinking had been expanded until the papers began to arrive. As the revelation progressed, we became more fully to appreciate how we had been prepared for the vast alteration of our religious beliefs by these preliminary contacts, extending over a period of 20 years of pre-education. Our apprenticeship training for subsequent service and associated with the presentation of the Urantia papers was facilitated by the fact that except for contacts with the midwayers, no two contacts were alike. Seldom did we meet the visiting personalities more than once. Every contact was entirely different from any and all that had gone before. And all of this experience was an extension and liberal preparatory educational training in the expansion of our cosmology, theology, and philosophy, not to mention our introduction to new ideas and concepts concerning a vast array of more mundane objects. The limited discussion of Jesus' life and teachings during these pre-revelatory contacts might be explained by the fact that the midwayers were a bit dubious as to how much authority they had in such matters. As shown later on when a whole year was consumed in the clarification of the right to retell the story of the Michael bestowal. Those of us who early attended upon these nocturnal vigils never suspected that we were in contact with anything supernatural. During these early years, all of our observation investigations uttered utterly failed to reveal the technique of reducing messages to writing. So... A lot of issues here that I run into with this is the fact that it seems like they had a lot of these meetings and a lot of listening, but nobody wrote anything down And in the beginning, and then they started writing later. So it kind of becomes one of those things, to me anyway, from what I understand from a lot of this reading, because nobody really says how it got written down, for sure. It's interesting. So so how the Urantia paper started, once again, we're still going off what their website says. After about 20 years of contact experience, an alleged student visitor speaking through this sleeping subject during one of these nocturnal vigils, 
In answer to one of our, our questions, said, if you only knew what you were in contact with, you would <clears throat> not ask such trivial questions. You would rather ask such questions as might elicit answers of supreme value to the human race. This was something as a shock, as well as a mild rebuke, and caused all of us to look upon this unique experience in a new and different way. Later on that night, one of our numbers said, now that we have asked... They have asked for it. Let us give these questions that no human being can answer. Now, it's best to let matters rest here while we shift this narrative to a new and different setting. So this is one of those things where a lot of people don't understand. Where this is supposedly started, supposedly there was a gentleman, which like I said, a lot of people think it was a Kellogg. We won't say which one. Um, do your research. It's quite interesting. Um, that basically while he was sleeping, he would talk. In his sleep. And this talking was basically him conveying messages from this these beings. And what they would do, they would write questions, give those questions to the being, and he would tell them in their sleep. So this is what they're talking about here. Is basically, it took him 20 years with this person to finally start asking questions that mattered. Yeah. That's what gets me with a lot of these. It took 20 years to come up with a good question. This is why as a race, I think we're doomed in many ways. It reminds me of one of these guys that I used to work for me. I fired him. It took him two weeks. Two weeks to come back and ask me why. I'm like, that's why. Because it took two weeks for you to form a question that a normal person would form in five seconds. This is my problem with this in a lot of ways. 20 years before they started asking real questions. Come on, people. Be better. I'm coming right away. If you're having questions like that, like I'm coming up, where do humans come from? What happens when we die? All those kind of shit is coming up right off the bat. Because I want to know. I'm not going to wait 20 years to ask those questions. I don't have that kind of time. So now they started the forum, like I said. So how did the forum start? Dr. William S. Sadler, a member of this early group of observers and investigators, tells the following story regarding the origin of that group of in interested individuals, which later on became known as the Forum. He says, on my way to the University of Kansas to, to deliver some lectures on Gestalt psychology, I wrote a letter to my son saying that I thought doctors should try to maintain some contact with their old patients. I suggest that he talk with his mother about the feasibility of inviting some of our old friends to meet with us on Sunday afternoons for an hour or two of informal discussion and social exchange. When I returned to Chicago one Sunday morning, I found that my wife had invited a group of our old patients to meet at our house that afternoon at 3 o'clock. It was the plan to conduct these Sunday afternoon gatherings somewhat as follows. First, have a talk on some health topic, such as the treatment of common colds, the cause and cure of worry, and then, after a cup of tea, engage in informal discussions, asking and answering questions. As time passed, the group became a cosmopolitan gathering consisting of professional men and women, doctors, lawyers, dentists, ministers, teachers, together with individuals from all walks of life, farmers, housewives, secretaries, office workers, and common laborers. So, once again, typical fashion of a cult 
They ask a question themselves. They give you like, hey, here, we're going to tell you how this happened. And then don't really give you a fulfilling answer. It, it's a lot of buildup with a lot of disappointment is what I'm getting on a lot of this stuff we're getting here. So, But this is typical for a cult or something that has cultish writings in it. So, so introduction to, of the form to the contacts. So presently, I was asked to give a series of talks on mental hygiene or psychic phenomena. At the beginning of my first talk, I said with only one or two exceptions, all the psychic phenomena which I have investigated have turned out to be either conscious or unconscious frauds. Some were deliberate frauds. Others were those peculiar cases in which the performer was a victim of the deceptions of his own subconscious mind, which we've seen all this. I had no more than said this when one of the group spoke up, said, Doctor, if you have contacted something which you have been unable to solve, it would be interesting. Tell us more. I asked Dr. Lena to get some notes. She had taken at a recent contact and read them to the group. It should be understood that up to this point, there was no secrecy connected with this case. The answer your papers had not begun to appear. I was, it was a, at about this time that the group meeting at our house on Sunday afternoons began to be called the Forum. Always sounds like very evil to me right there. The Forum. But yeah, so yeah. The group manifested such a great interest in this case that I never did get around to giving any of the health talks such as had been planned. It was while these informal questions were going on from the week to week that the challenge came to us, suggesting that if we would ask more serious questions, we might get information of value to all mankind. Isn't that how it always is with cults and anything cultish? We have value to the whole mankind. We can save everybody that wants to be saved. Dun, dun, dun. So, here we go. The form becomes a closed group. About this time, the form, as it were, was taken away from us. We were instructed to form a closed group, requiring each member to sign a pledge of secrecy and to discuss the papers and all matters pertaining thereto with only those persons who were members of the forum. And this is where it starts to get more and more nefarious, because now all of a sudden it's gone from a group of friends just sitting around talking, drinking, playing poker, doing whatever... To a secret group that you have to sign a waiver saying that I will only talk about these matters with people who are part of the forum, who are part of a group, who are one of us. Very interesting. So membership tickets were issued in the charter membership number 30. The date of this organization was September 1925. 17 of these charter members, technically, supposedly, at least at the time of this writing, were still living. The individual is charged with the responsibility of gathering up the questions and comparing the typewritten text with the original handwritten manuscript came to be known as the contact commissioners. From that date forward, only these contact commissioners attended contacts and received written communications through the contact personality. From time to time, new members were received into the forum after being interviewed by the officers and after signing the same pledge that was signed by the original members. 
The pledge read, We acknowledge our pledge of secrecy, renewing our promise not to discuss the Urantia revelations or their subject matter with any one save active foreign members and to take no notes of such matter as is read or discussed at the public sessions or make copies or notes of what we personally read. Sounds a lot like, I don't know, the Bilderberg Group? Wasn't that they? Hmm. One of those? Something similar to that. One of those ones had something similar to this. Where you can't take notes, you can't do anything, you can't hmm, can't talk about it with anybody, but who was there? So, the last meeting of the forum as a genetic assembly was held on May 31st, 1942. During the 17 years of official existence, the forum attained a total membership of 400 and 86. During the period of the reception of the Urantia papers, upward of 300 different persons participated in asking these genetic questions. With but few exceptions, all the Urantia papers were given in response to such questions. So, how we got the Urantia papers? Just about all that is known or could be told about the origin of the Urantia papers to be found here and there in the Urantia book, unless there's such references to be found in the back of the dust jacket of the book. So, there's a bunch of them. If you want to look it up, I mean, like I said, there, there's 2,000 pages in this book. So, then basically, how do we get the, the, the Urantia book? Recently, a group of ministers from northern Indiana who engaged in studying the Urantia book spent the day with us, and during the evening, Dr. Sather led a discussion how we did not get the Urantia book. The following is the gist of that presentation. Several members of this group who participated in the preliminary contacts which led up to the appearance of the Urantia papers had considerable experience in the investigation of psychic phenomena. This group early arrived at the conclusion that the phenomena connected with the personality who was later associated with the Urantia papers was in no way similar to any other well-known type of psychic performance, such as hypnotism, automatic writing, clairvoyance, trances, spirit mediumship, telepathy, or double personality. Here's my biggest issue with a lot of this. They keep saying this stuff. They had, they had experience investigating this stuff. They were the debunkers. Who is the best person to get something past the debunkers? I don't know. A debunker themselves. I have problems with this because of that. And I know that makes it, you know, one of those things like how is it supposed to ever be proven true? I don't know. But the hardest part with this for me is if you're going to beat the system, the best way to beat the system is to be the system. And that's exactly what happens here. These are the debunkers that are beating the debunkers. Hmm. Seems suspect to me. But whatever. Ooh. So back to what they say here. It should be made clear that the antecedents of the Urantia papers were in no way associated with the so-called spiritualism. With its seances and supposed communication with the spirits of departed human beings. So... Psychic phenomena and user activities of marginal con consciousness. So no automatic writing, no automatic talking, no speaking in tongues, no trance mediums, no spirit mediums, no catalepsy, whatever the, that is. Uh, clear audience, no hearing voices, no automatic seeing, none of that. So 
The technique of the reception of the Urantia book in English is no way parallels or impinges upon any of the above phenomena that we just mentioned or any of the others. It just kind of, it happens. So it's very, very interesting. So th there's a lot of that we can go farther into with this and more, but before we go, we're, we're going to kind of go, we've gotten a long ways into what they said on their, their page. So the first Urantia papers, the first group of papers, number 57, uh, were received a communication that since we could now ask many and much more intelligent questions, the supervision agencies and personalities responsible for transmitting the 57 pages would engage to enlarge the revelation and expand the papers in accordance with our new questions. So there was 57 pages in the first 57 and then they were said hey you can add more so they started asking more questions so the plan was read a paper on a sunday afternoon and the following sunday the new questions would be presented again they would be sorted classified etc this program covered several years and ultimately results in presentation of the 196 papers as now found in the unanjia paper or unanjia book in a way there was a third presentation after receiving these 196 page papers, we were told that the revelatory commission would be pleased to have us go over the pages once more and ask questions concerning the clarification of concepts. So this seems like this was a long, long process. Um, and we can go deeper and deeper into what they say, but I'm kind of, I really don't want to go farther into the history of what they say. Research it. Look into it. Here's kind of the thing. They, they, they have trustees. So right now the trustee is Chris Wood. So he is the trustee. Um, what they say too is in their leadership, we value loving service, unselfish devotion, courage, loyalty, sincere fairness, enlightened honesty, undying hope, confiding trust, merciful ministry, unfailing goodness, forgiving tolerance, enduring peace. And we value all that is divine. So trustees, Chris Wood is the, the head trustee right now. Uh, Guard Jameson is the treasurer. So um, they have a bunch of, you know, trustees. They have a lot of that. So Mo Siegel's still the president of it. So there's a lot of, it's a group and that's the weirdest thing is there's no real, I mean, most Siegel's the president, but he's not really like a cult leader. He's just the president of the trustees. Very weird. So, so here's something that I'm going to read to you too. Another thing, and this is once again from the urantiabook.org. So, but this is kind of an idea of how it came into existence according to William S. Sadler Jr. So. So I'm going to read this to you. It's quite interesting, quite weird, but it gives you an idea too also of, and I might skip through some of it because it does get kind of into the weeds, but, um, so this is transcribed from a tape recording made in the home of Berkeley Elliott, an earlier Antia book reader on February 18th, 1962. On this occasion, William S. Sadler Jr., one of five people intimately involved with the transmission of the material in the Urantia book, was talking with the group there assembled concerning the origins of the Urantia book. So here's kind of what he says. Many years ago, my parents, who were physicians, had brought their attention 
uh, this individual who had some rather strange things happening to him. In one of the books my father wrote, The Mind at Mischief, he made mention of this case in the last part of the book. In the appendix, which was published in the 1920s, my father had spook hunting as a hobby. He was an exposure of mediums. He had two running mates, the head of the psychology department at Northwestern University, and Howard Thurston, a professional magician. Take a physician, a psychologist, and a magician, and God help the medium. There's a book now out of print, which my father wrote, called The Truth About Spiritualism, in which he puts so-called spiritualists as following the one of two categories. They are practicing frauds, deliberately working for gain or for glory, and there are people who are self-deceived. I think in that book he says, with one possible exception. These two physicians, Drs. William and Lena Sadler, became interested in this case. This man would go to sleep and he'd talk, and what came out was intriguing and different. He was never interested in the lost watch or the stock market or in talking with your Uncle George, who had passed on. Never anything practical. This was different, distinctly offbeat. About this time, a Sunday evening meeting came to be organized at our house. It came about when Pop was giving a commencement address at Ames. I was in high school at the time, and he wrote me a letter saying that we were not church people, but that Sunday should be productive as well as a day of rest. He asked what I would say if they invited in some friends, and they had a discussion group, kind of a forum, talked about health and history and politics, etc. That group came into existence, I think in 1922. This group became interested in spiritualism because Pop was writing on that subject at the time. My dad was mischievous. There was a mind-reading vaudeville show at McVickers. Pop attended twice. He took a pair of wire cutters and clipped the wires that hooked the guy in the audience with a gal on the stage, at which point she fainted and they asked if there was a doctor in the audience. And Pop had the gal go to go back and take care of her. Had the gall to go back and take care of her. About this time, I was in Nicaragua, as some of what I tell you is hearsay. 1924 to 1928 will be hearsay, but subsequently to 1928, I'll give you direct information. The question came up whether all such phenomena is fraudulent. My dad was an honest guy, so he, had, he said there was one such case that was a puzzle. So I asked him to tell him about it. So the form became intrigued in the shorthand notes that had been taken of the, the things this man ta- talked about. One evening, when they were talking to this chap, a kind of argument came up. They were talking with someone who claimed to be a mighty messenger. They asked if he could prove he was a mighty messenger. No, he said, but you can't prove I'm not either. If you knew what I know, you wouldn't ask these half-baked questions. You would prepare some of the most deep, searching, and far-reaching questions you could possibly imagine. My father was half English and half Irish, and he got kind of mad. They were checking out this phenomena, and here they were being challenged. Pop looked at the others in the group and said, let's take him up on it. So the next Sunday when the forum met, the whole group came in on the deal. I was told that approximately 5,000 questions were given. Some were silly, how old is God, who created him, and so forth. What happened was this. One day the questions were gone, and where the questions were kept was the first of the Urantia papers, and it was entitled, The Universal Father. So this is where it gets interesting, by the way. So this is me saying that it's about to get interesting. This is where they talk about, and this is where they they kind of put in the thing of like, hey, any inconsistencies? Blammo, this is why. So here you go. Back to what they wrote. I'll tell you how I think this paper was written, and my theory is not 100% correct. 
but it's the best I can find. Visualize several places in space, points A, B, C, and D. I think the papers were dictated or conceived at point A. And had we been there when these papers were written, we would have seen nothing. A divine counselor is presenting his concepts in the language of Uversa. A translator is there who translates it into the language of Southington. There is another translator there who translates from the language of Southington to the language of Satinia. And another translator translates from Satinia into English. You cannot translate from Uversa to English because the language is too far apart. I suspect that 99% of the original concept was lost in translation. English is too primitive a language. Take Bantu, where they have one, two, and then many, the end of their numbers. And you want to translate into large number systems. You simply can't do it. See the problem? Of course, nobody sees the problem. What? Point A was linked by some, some sort of communication circuit to point B. At point B, there would be something to see, but it would be rather dull. It would be a man asleep. Doing nothing. Remember the resurrection and the way the stone was moved by the midwires? At point C, you would see a pencil moving over paper with no visible means of motion. That's where the physical writing took place. Now point D would be where we found the papers. This individual was never seen to write one of these papers and don't think we weren't wearing gumshoes looking. If we wrote them, he was more clever than us. He was never observed to write them. We tried everything we could think of to see how this was being done but we're baffled the text was entirely written in pencil all in the handwriting of this individual who remarked that if they ever wanted to draw on his bank account he'd be a dead duck because the bank would pay on their signature who was this guy i took an oath not to divulge who he was that was required of all who know his identity it is required by the commissioner who sponsored the last of the papers we think we know why it was required he wouldn't have asked us to maintain secrecy. One of the reasons this chap was picked is that he was a, has a passion for anonymity. Very stable man. The exact opposite of what you'd think someone associated with this would be like. His head was solidly, head was solidly on his shoulders and his feet solidly on the ground. Someone who'd be ashamed to be mixed up with something spooky. He doesn't want to be known. These papers were read to the forum. At the end of each paper was a note suggesting the next title on which questions should be asked. This is how they led us through the first time. They were read to the forum, and they generated more questions. And over a period of years, this book accumulated. And eventually, when we had money, we published. In 1915 or 1950, we completed the preparation of our plates. As money came in, we for forecast inflation. So we took the money we had spent, and in getting Donnelly to prepare the plates, if we went to Chicago, you'd see that the Urantia Foundation was established in 1950. By the unanimous don donation of the plates of the Urantia book, we got nickel-coated plates. If you write to Donnelly, they'll tell you they negotiate with Kellogg. The Urantia Foundation owns a the copyright. There are five trustees. In about 1954, these five trustees selected 36 people who organized the Urantia Brotherhood. The book was published in October 1955 and has been spreading ever since. I was there most of the time. I'm a management man, not a publisher. So that was a, a basically an interview with William S. Sadler Jr. And his dad, of course, was the person who wrote. Okay, didn't write, but one of the, the people who's associated with the beginnings of the Urantia book. So we've kind of gone through 
and talked quite a bit about what they believe, you know, the origin and everything else of the Urantia book is. Like I said, the authorship is argued. So it, it gets very interesting as you go down. Um, I'm running out of time. Suppose, surprisingly, I didn't think I was going to have enough to really go a long way in this. And right now, I actually feel like we've gone through and talked about how and where and kind of a little bit what the book is, but really haven't talked about what the book says and the beliefs in the book, which start to get even more and more crazy and insane. So I think on that... I'm going to leave you with the origins of the Urantia book. And then when I come back on the next midweek. So my first, my last midweek of 2023 is going to be the history of the Urantia book. My first midweek of 2024 will be, what was it that they said? What were the beliefs written in the Urantia book? And what does it mean? So we will go into that next time. So if you have any questions for me leading up to that or something that you feel I missed in talking about the history, let me know and I can bring it up on the next one. Um, but until then, um, have a happy new year. Um, if you know you celebrate the, the new year, some cultures celebrate new year later. So happy new year and we will, uh, we will talk to you soon. Thank you.